Hi, everybody. This is your cousin, Brucey, and you are listening to TV Confidential. And now, not confidential, here's Cousin Ed. Ed Robertson with a reminder that we will play part two of a conversation with actor and entrepreneur Rodimus Hurrah later on in this hour. We hope to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, joining us via Skype as we begin our second hour are Carol Ford and Linda Groundwater. Carol and Linda are two of the co-authors, along with Young, of Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography, a comprehensive examination of the life and career of the beloved star of Hogan's Heroes, whose accomplishments in radio and television are often overshadowed by the brutal nature of his unsolved murder and the scandalous nature of his addiction to sex. Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography, is available hardcover, paperback, and as an ebook through Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Before we went to break, Carol and Linda and I were talking about Crane's addiction to sex, which is the subject of the final section of Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography. Here's one of my takeaways from the addiction chapter. And I remember I stopped, you know, as, as, I, as I wrote this down, because it makes, it makes a lot of sense, especially given the way the deliberate choices you made in structuring the book Carol and Linda. Crane, this is what I wrote down. Crane was a collector and a chronicler. He kept notes, he kept records, he kept journals, he kept recordings and videotapes of everything. He did this his entire life. This was not just a lark um, when he started recording his lovemaking. I mean, he, this was a guy who had, who you would call this, to, to some degree, it was OCD. He was compelled to record yes. everything. And so when you understand oh, yeah. that. What people tend to think is that, oh, my gosh, look at all the huge amounts of pornography that he has. It's, it's oh, it's just taking over everything. It has to be very clearly stated that Bob, like you said, was chronicling his life. So in Bob's mind, having sex was just as normal <laughs> as a birthday party. Yeah. And so he would videotape a birthday party. He would videotape, uh, you know, a ballpark, you know, going going to watch a ball game or something and, and or, you know, a dinner conversation or just a family outing. And then spliced in between all of that would be uh, a 10 minute romp uh, of sex. So basically what he was doing was he felt very compelled to record his life. And he recorded it in journaling by writing. He recorded it through audio tapes. And he recorded it through what was then a very brand new way of recording things, which was with a uh, video cassette. Before video cassette, he was recording videos with the, you know, the, the uh, millimeter film, the eight millimeter films. He, he was just chronicling as much as he could. And so when you look at it as a pie chart, the pornography is really just a small slice of a much bigger pie chart. And that's something that people aren't really aware of. They just think that he's just got this mountain of pornography and that's really all that he's got. Yeah, okay, he liked to take films or he liked to take pictures of his kids or, you know, whatever. But it really was massive. Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to just go through some of the, just the regular audio tapes, and it was audio tapes of dinner conversations. It, it was just normal stuff. Yeah. And because he did all that, 
it was just this this wedge of the pie that that got in there with everything else, which which was the amateur pornography. If you go to season two DVD of Hogan's Heroes, you'll see some home movies that that uh, his second wife Sigurd Valdis put into the extras for the DVD set, and it's all these home movies of that's got their wedding, it's got their it's got home back behind the scenes of of uh, on the set of Hogan's Heroes and stuff. That's because he carried that camera with him everywhere he went and so you know it's it's really important to to look at that and say you know this this is just a piece it's not all of it it's not just all that he was doing the other aspect of that just adding to what carol said is the other misconception is that bob went to hollywood and turned into a bad boy sex addict right that's not true (laughs) it's absolutely (laughs) not true he had he had issues all through his life. We went back to people in high school and they were talking about Bob and women and Bob and and things going on in the background. He had, you know, a whole life, but it's much more glamorous or spectacular for Hollywood to ruin people as opposed to just saying this was a part of his life. Was it a part of his life that was destructive? In the end, yes, absolutely. Anything that becomes addictive becomes destructive but did it start just because he became a big hollywood star no it became exposed because he became a big hollywood star but it didn't begin because he was a big hollywood star so again just all the misconceptions all he kept was pornographic video heavens no there's so much video it was ridiculous he pared his record albums down remember i think it was twenty thousand records he had yeah patty got him to bring them down to just five thousand five thousand if he had if he had an appointment in his diary and the appointment didn't happen he would go back into his diary and write notes about why it didn't happen that's right or whether it happened and what happened when it happened and he would check it off yes yeah yeah he would check it off so you know he was a whole person not just sex yes he was a whole person but this is the other takeaway i got from the addiction chapter Linda is, and I don't remember whether this was Ed Beck who said this or someone else, but it was, and this goes back to the OCD nature that's behind it was his desire to record everything. And when we say record, we mean write down, capture, make a part of his personal history of recording. It was as if Writing down and keeping a record and memorializing everything or every significant thing, accomplishment in his career or in his life, certain moments. It was as if memorializing them, recording them, somehow validated his existence. Yes. Uh, There were a couple of people who touched on that. We spoke to four different addiction specialists. In addition to Ed Beck, who wasn't really an addiction specialist, he said this wasn't his area. Bob just knew that he was someone who could potentially get him in touch with the right person. And he had some talks with him about what he could do, you know, what he needed to change. Um, but as as several of them said, uh, Nancy Irwin, I believe, was one of the ones who said, you know, you've got this these hallmarks of addiction. Um, and one of them is the absolute, uh, you know, unable to stop, even though you say you 
want to. You need more and more of it. Bob became um, a person who had an inability to actually be intimate. And the way she phrased it particularly, which um, really touched me, or really impacted me, was look but don't touch my soul. Bob couldn't understand, or maybe he could understand but couldn't do and we'll never know because he never got the chance to discuss it. But the idea of being intimate versus being sexual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had, he created a false self dating way back from when he lived with his family in Connecticut. He created a false self to help in his family. He ran interference in his family. His yes. childhood was very strict. And they were very, and they were. He he couldn't wait to break out of it. Um, one of his friends, Ed Gordon, had said, and I remember this. You know, years and years later, there are still some things you remember mm-hmm. being said specifically and how they were said. Mm-hmm. And he said we would go to the house to deal with music or whatnot after school. And he said you would sit there with your hands gripped on the end of the chair, as one of the parents said, "Would you like a glass of lemonade?" You know, it was ju- it was a very difficult, strict place to be but bob wouldn't tell people that he just couldn't wait to get the hell out of there mm-hmm. um and addiction requires novelty hogan's heroes um alexandra katahakis who was a different addiction specialist actually said you know hogan's heroes was like a marriage it was the same every day he was with the same people all the time as things got better for him and he still had these other issues in the background he needed that novelty the novelty came from sex the sex mm-hmm. came from way back, but he couldn't distinguish sexuality from intimacy because intimacy doesn't necessarily require sex, but he was afraid of letting anyone into that part of him. He didn't expect to be understood as one of the, uh, as David Bissett, who was one of our other specialists, said, he didn't expect to be understood. A person with that kind of issue expects to be judged. So they're doing whatever they need to do to get through the day, which means they're going to hide those things that they do that they believe simply validates the fact that they're a bad person. Look at me. Here I am being horrible doing this again. So I'm not going to show you that. I'm going to show you the person that I want to be and the person that I know you want me to be because that kind of behavior of putting on that false person, which is really, I think, who Bob wanted to be, Mm -hmm. started way way back before any of the hollywood fame and fortune and whatnot came his way bob crane the definitive biography available in hardcover paperback and as an ebook amazon.com where books are sold online carol ford linda groundwater two of the co-authors of bob crane the definitive biography are with us this week via skype there are a couple more points I want to make about the addiction chapter, and then I want to shift gears. Can I just say something very quickly? Sure. Um, it's very important for people to understand that the reason why we did reach out to, we, we actually reached out to four separate experts in uh, sexual addiction or sexual, not, not, not always addiction, but because Veronica Monet was, was intimacy, was more of an int- intimacy coach. But we reached out to these experts in this field because Linda and Dee and I are not that. 
Uh, Ed Beck, Reverend Beck, is not was not a sex addiction counselor. He did do addiction counseling, but just not, as Linda said, not this type of addiction counseling. And so for us to try and understand what potentially could have been going on in Bob's mind, we did talk to four addiction counselors, four sexual ex- experts in the field of sexuality or sexual addiction, and we did garner those responses, as Linda has just said, uh, so that we could we could provide a deeper understanding. Uh, but of course, as Linda said too, without Bob being here, you can't put him on the couch. You can't psychoanalyze him. But it was important for us to be able to understand and then convey that to our readers. And there was not, and there will never be an actual formal diagnosis. No Correct. one will ever really know for certain Correct. if Bob was what would be the medical definition in today's terms Absolutely of a sexual correct. because he never had the chance to be treated he never had the chance to be diagnosed aside from some conversations he had with ed beck we could find no one else with whom he had in any depth discussed this kind of thing so with that in mind it's important to know that we're we're not judging him but we are presenting the conclusions that these people came to because these people these psychologists or addiction specialists were told what these first-hand experiences were with the people that Bob knew. And so that is as close as we're ever going to come to seeing and hearing what might have been happening in Bob's life. If a friend says he was with his girlfriend, but he was too busy looking at this woman, and this is what he would say, and this is how he would act, they would ask us questions and we would only give them the information that we had as in this is what was happening in bob's household this is what was happening at school this is what was happening on set and they could tell us that look that usually means this Mm -hmm. but we never know for sure of course but it was important to speak to someone who because people will interpret those things when they read the book they'll just interpret them on their own and none of us or i would say a very very small portion of people who read this book will be addiction specialists so it was important that we get their point of view to be able to say look as an actual specialist this is what i think about what you've just read Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography, available in hardcover, paperback, and as an ebook, Amazon.com, where books are sold online. Carol Ford, Linda Groundwater, two of the co authors of Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography, are with us this week via Skype. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Two more things. I think it was Linda who said, from all indications, up until the time he started seeing Ed Beck, he was incapable of making the distinction between uh, sex and intimacy. It was black or white. It was red or yellow. Carol knows this. Linda, you may not be aware of this. I've had Robert Crane, Bob's eldest son, on the program, and I've gotten to know Bob a little bit over the years. And one takeaway from his book, which is uh, one of the last conversations he had with Bob, father to son, is I'm, be- I'm beginning to see orange for the first time in my life. And from what I can tell, he made that comment to his son, his eldest son, around the time or as a result of working with Ed Beck. So yes. it's... 
and and again, that's that's part of the tragedy of what happened on June 29, 78, because this is a man who was realizing, okay, this I can't, I've got to do something about it, and he reached out. He didn't need an intervention. He reached out and said, okay, I need help. And through talking to people, he ended up working with Ed Beck for the time that he worked with him. And he was beginning to see the gray in life. He was beginning yes. to see the orange yes. in the spectrum. And yes, mm-hmm. had he been able, had he lived, you know, one would think, who knows what the second chapter, what, what the third act of his life would have been like. And nobody can answer that because, unfortunately, he was taken from us and he didn't get a chance to take that next step. I One of the saddest things, when I was writing, I came in contact with just by chance. It was one of those, those uh, things that, that just kind of falls out of the sky and you're like, wow, how, how did I get this person? He was in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it was on June 27th, 1978. This is the very last chapter of the book, and it's called Laughing All the Way to the Grave. Mm-hmm. Because Bob had an interview with a reporter that was interviewing him about his play that was running in Scottsdale, Beginner's Luck. And this reporter just had a, you know, he was a Scottsdale reporter, just, hey, you're, you're a star, you're in town, I'm going to interview you. And Bob went on to say that if ever I were to write my own autobiography, I would call it laughing all the way to the grave. <laughs> and two days later, he's dead. Yeah. And to me, that is so sad because he is sitting there, he's looking towards the future. He wants to now write a book. Bob was a writer. A lot of people don't realize that he, he wrote scripts. He wrote Hollywood scripts that did get produced uh, for, for television, uh, a couple of them. He did like to write. He enjoyed writing. And I think I would like to hope that he would have come through this addiction, that he would have gotten the, the help. He might have had to do it a couple of times, and maybe there would have been some backsliding. But I think in the end, because one thing that, that we've known, and Linda, I think you'll agree with me, is that when Bob put his mind to something, he was very, very, very driven. And when he put his mind to something, it was he was going to go after it, and he was going to get it, and he was going to chase it. And he, he did it with radio. He did it with music and drums. He did it with acting. And you can see you can see that meteoric climb all the way to, to the top with Hogan's here. So he, he was very driven when he put his mind to something to achieve a goal. He went to achieve that goal. So I would like to think that he would have uh, been able to eventually – battle this and and overcome it. I would like to think that in the end he would have written his book and that his book could have told us from firsthand knowledge about his career in radio. I mean, his radio career is so stellar and his music and drums, you know, Hogan's Heroes in and of itself, tell us about Hogan's Heroes. He started writing a journal for Hogan's Heroes that he didn't keep up, unfortunately. And then also how he was able to overcome his addiction. I would have loved to have seen a book written by Bob Crane about his life and times, and he was denied that chance. But knowing what I know after researching him for so long, I would like to think that he would have given everything to try and achieve the goal of overcoming his addiction. His persona... I I agree 100% too. His persona, his public image was glib, light, breezy, but behind that persona was this depthful person. 
um, mm-hmm. and for, who, for whatever reason, was not comfortable letting people know that there was a lot more to him than there actually was. And again, part what, what one would imagine that had he been given a chance to live out his third act, that he would have been more comfortable showing that to the public and revealing that. Yes, yes. It would have taken a lot of work. Yes. Because anything like that takes a lot of work. It would not have come easy because it had been, at that point, 49 years. He died when he was just 49, just two weeks shy of his 50th birthday. But that's a lot of that's a lot of work to yeah. get to that point. Yep. Uh, could he have gotten better at allowing people to be a part of that side of him? I would like to think so. And, and I don't think that it's, it was like he was this... The way people described him was he was a little bit shy. He was somewhat shy. He was a little standoffish. He was, you know, the the cast of Hogan's Heroes, they they were a lot younger than he was. So he was kind of off. Yeah, plus he was the star. So he kind of was like a little bit off, you know, kind of kept to himself. But he wasn't like this cold, icy, you know, can't approach person. He was very approachable. It was just that he would only let you go so far. And so he there's a friend of mine that would talk to me about um, the art of the nonsense conversation where you can talk to somebody for an hour and come away feeling like, wow, I just had the best conversation ever. And it was really just, you know, the weather and the time, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that kind of is what Bob did. And he he could make you feel like you were the most important person in the room. So we were told and he would just, you know, he would look at you and he would look, you know, you were the person that he was speaking to. It could have been a room full of 150 people. But when he was talking to you, he was talking to you. And so that made him very approachable, very kind, very uh, easygoing and breezy. But again, you know, you were only going to get so far. And um, down the road, how much of that do we really let out to anybody? You know, I think we're all pretty guarded, um, and some of us maybe more so than others. But regardless, it would have taken an awful lot of work for him to be able to open up to, you know, friends or, you know, just people that he necessarily wouldn't have opened up to. I think he opened up more when he was in school with his friends where he would almost be where he was brought to tears when uh he they thought his brother had been killed in world war ii and his friend charlie and he would they would be playing uh charlie played piano bob was playing drums and they were just kind of you know doing some music and and you know during that time where they didn't know if his brother had been killed or not bob would have been brought to tears and so that was a side of bob that yeah he did have and he let people see that if they were a part of that real tight inner circle but as a general rule, he was keeping you at distance. So he was keeping you at an arm's length and making you feel like you were still in that in that inner circle. Carol Ford and Linda Groundwater are two of the co-authors, along with Dee Young, of Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography, a comprehensive Cradle to Grave Examination of the Life and Career of the Beloved Star of Hogan's Heroes that provides a full and complete history of who Bob Crane was and, just as important, who he was not. Bob Crane, the definitive biography available hardcover, paperback, and as an ebook, Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. We'll take a quick time out, then we'll play part two of our conversation with Rodimus Perrault of the original Kung Fu and Little House in the Prairie. We go back on TV Confidential. Buying or selling a home can be one of the most stressful things we'll ever do in life, but it doesn't have to be. And no one knows better than our friends at Front Porch Realty Group. Their community of realtors serving the Northern Bay Area of California 
that cares about their clients as individuals first and foremost. Whether you're a first-time buyer or looking to lease or sell your property in the Bay Area, Front Porch Realty Group will help you through this important transition by providing you with the right information for your situation while lessening the pain. They also work with a network of realtors throughout California who provide the same high caliber of customer service. Call Front Porch Realty Group at 415-886-7411 for a realtor referral near you. You can also visit their website, frontporchrealtygroup.com, for more information on the services they provide, including upcoming workshops and seminars. For more information, call 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com. Front Porch Realty Group. They'll find the solution that works best for you. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.